Hello, everyone. What is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. I hope you all are having a great week. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. If you're listening to me on the podcast, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly every Wednesday. You're not going to want to miss it. And if you are watching me on YouTube, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button as well. We post every Thursday and you're not going to want to miss that either. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's video, today we are talking about a man named Mark Twitchell. And Mark Twitchell is quite the character, to say the least. He's actually known as the failed serial killer. That's kind of his tagline. So with that being said, I'm not going to give too much away. Let's jump right on into it. Mark Andrew Twitchell was born on July 4th, 1979 in Edmonton, which is located in Alberta, Canada. Now, we don't know much about Mark's family life. However, what we do know is that he had a pretty good upbringing. There's not a lot of details on his upbringing. However, from what we know, there was never really any traumatic experiences that Mark went through. But what we do know is that from a very young age, Mark had a major passion for film and TV. He even attended the radio and television arts program at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, and he graduated from there in the year 2000. Shortly after graduating is when he met his first wife, a woman named Megan Cal- Pastorella on an online dating website called Plenty of Fish. Now, if you are not familiar with what Plenty of Fish is, Plenty of Fish is a dating website similar to a Match.com or an eHarmony. I don't, I don't know if they still have eHarmony, but if they do, and if you know what that is, it's basically the same premise. So Megan and Mark met on Plenty of Fish, and when they met, Megan was living in the United States. She was living in Illinois, more specifically, and again, Mark was living in Canada. Now, after a couple years of them dating, Mark decided to move to Illinois. That way, they could live together and be married and do that whole next chapter, and that's exactly what they did. And at first, Mark moving to be closer to Megan and for them to be able to live together seemed like a great idea and the two of them were really hitting it off. They seemed to be on the right track in their relationship. However, over time, Megan realized that Mark wasn't the most honest of people. Mark essentially was a compulsive liar and he would lie about things all across the board from little things like chores around the house and bills that needed to get paid. He would always lie about that, but then he started lying about bigger things, more so being infidelity. Mark was cheating on his wife, Megan. Mark had been cheating on his wife, Megan, and Megan decided that that was the final straw and that enough was enough. So in 2004, Mark and Megan ended up getting a divorce and Mark went back to Canada. Now, something to know about Mark is that he is a huge, huge Star Wars fan. And I'm not talking just any sort of fan. I am talking super mega fan. So much so that once the Star Wars series had ended, Mark had actually made his own Star Wars movie that he called Star Wars Secrets of the Rebellion. Mark hired local actors to participate in the film, and for all things considered, it got some pretty good online traction from other Star Wars mega fans who wanted to watch it. It was being talked about in different chat rooms and blogs, and so for all things considered, it definitely was a success. 
Now, while Mark was going through the whole Star Wars thing, this is when he decided to get back into the dating scene. And he decided to go back where it all started, where he met his first wife on Plenty of Fish. Now, Plenty of Fish worked out again for Mark because this is where he met his second wife, which was a woman named Jess. Now, the two married in 2007, and Jess and Mark had their first and only child together, which was their daughter, and things seemed to be going really well for Mark. After creating the Star Wars prequel, he moved on to a different genre and created a comedy called Day Players. And after Day Players, Mark moved into a whole new sector and genre of filmmaking, which was suspense and horror films. Mark created a short film called House of Cards, where the plot was about a serial killer who used various tactics to lure his victims in over the internet. In order to produce House of Cards, Mark rented a studio located in the south end of Edmonton. And Mark was very excited when he rented the studio. He thought it was going to be the perfect place to film his horror movies. And he actually got in contact with his neighbors. He sent them all letters and said that if they ever heard screaming coming from this studio, that they shouldn't worry because that was just him filming his horror movie. So this is what's going on in Mark's life. He's filming his horror movie. He has his wife, Jess. He has his daughter. This is when Mark dives into a new sector of his life and he starts catfishing people over the internet. If you're not familiar with what catfishing is, catfishing is a term that is used when someone essentially pretends to be someone they're not over the internet. We see it all the time. There's even a TV show called Catfish. People will take pictures of someone else and pretend that that's them. They will create these whole new identities for these people. And you would be surprised at the lengths people will go to try and make this believable and try to make people believe that they are who they say they are. And in reality, it's the farthest thing from the truth. So Mark begins catfishing people, and he does this by signing back up for plenty of fish. Now, mind you, he's still married to Jess. He still has his daughter, but he decides to sign up for plenty of fish again, but he does not sign up as himself. Instead, Mark signs up for plenty of fish again as a woman named Sheena. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's instant alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. So Mark created this Sheena character online and he put up pictures of this blonde woman, described himself in his bio as a really desirable woman, and he got a lot of hits from this. A lot of men wanted to talk to Sheena, who was actually 
Mark. So Mark created the Sheena profile and put Sheena's interests as men. So only men would see Sheena's profile. Now, one of the men who matched with Sheena on Plenty of Fish was a man named Giel Tetro. After speaking with Sheena for a little while, Giel and Sheena decided to meet up for the first time. Only problem was Sheena, like I said, was actually Mark. So how was this possibly going to work. Now, just for clarification purposes, I think we all are now under the understanding that whenever I say Sheena, I mean Mark. So I'm going to just refer to her as that. So Sheena had suggested that the two of them meet at her house, which was actually the studio that Mark had rented for his horror movie. Sheena sent instructions on how to get into the studio and the two made plans for 7 p.m. Now, during the time leading up to 7, Mark was preparing what he called his kill room. The kill room was essentially the studio. Mark had put plastic sheets on tables and he also put a green curtain where he could hide until his victims walked through the door and then he could attack them. He also kept metal pipes, stun guns, and prop guns that he kept as a scare tactic that he had from his movies. On October 3rd, 2008, Gilles used the instructions that Sheena had given to him and followed them to a T straight to the studio. Now, Gilles didn't tell anyone where he was going. Even though he was meeting up with a stranger, he didn't tell any of his friends. He didn't tell really anyone. He didn't tell a soul where he was going because he figured that he didn't have to. He had plans to meet up with a fun blonde woman that he didn't see as a threat. So why would he have to tell anyone about that? Now, when Gilles arrived to the studio, Sheena had told him to walk into the garage and she would meet him there. However, when Gilles walked in, he was not met with Sheena. He was met by Mark. Mark had jumped out from the curtain and completely attacked Gilles to the ground. Mark used the stun gun on Gilles and then threatened him to do whatever he said by using the fake prop guns that he had. However, of course, Gilles didn't know that these were just fake guns. He was under the assumption that they were real. Now, Mark at the time was wearing a hockey mask, so Gilles was unable to see Mark's identity. He had no idea who was attacking him and Mark actually ended up blindfolding Gilles with duct tape. And surprisingly enough, even while being blindfolded with duct tape, Gilles was able to punch Mark in the face during this attack before removing the duct tape and running out the door. Now, when Gilles ran out the door is when the effects of the stun gun started to hit him and he wasn't able to really use his legs or run. So he actually had to crawl out of the alley and out of the driveway into the main street. And while he was crawling into the main street, he saw a couple walking alongside the road and asked them to help him. Now, this couple didn't believe Gilles. They basically thought that this was a scam. I'm not exactly sure what they thought Gilles was going to do, but they didn't believe him. So they kept walking, which basically left Gilles back at square one by himself. And at this point, Mark was trying to catch up behind him and bring him back into the studio. Now, at this point, when Mark saw Gilles talking to the couple, he basically 
basically thought that his plan was ruined. So he ran back to the studio, grabbed his things, locked it up, and drove home before Gilles was able to get back to his car, where he eventually drove home as well. Now, Gilles never reported this incident to the police because he said he was embarrassed. So this was never filed. This was never reported. And while Gilles wanted to never remember what happened to him and wanted to forget this, Mark, on the other hand, was using this as a learning experience. This was the first attack that he had done. And he said that he learned a lot from it. And he actually wrote a note on his computer of what he should do differently. And this note reads, quote, this is the story of my progression into becoming a serial killer. Like anyone just starting out a new skill, I had a bit of trial and error in the beginning of my misadventures. Allow me to start from the beginning and I think you'll see what I mean. I don't remember the exact time and place it was that I decided to become a serial killer, but I remember the sensation that hit me when I committed to the decision. It was a rush of pure euphoria. I felt lighter, less stressed, if you will, at the freedom of this prospect. There was something about urgently exploring why the dark side that greatly appealed to me, and I'm such a methodical planner and thinker, the very challenge itself was enticing to behold. The realization was just the last in a series of new discoveries I made about myself." End quote. Now, we're going to talk about that letter in particular in a little bit, but I'm going to leave you with that excerpt from it for now. Now, again, since Gilles never reported this attack to the police, this basically showed Mark that not only could he get away with it, but that now it was time to plan his next attack. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. All right, you guys, welcome back. Now, at this time, Mark went back on the Plenty of Fish website, and because he couldn't still use the profile of Sheena, because obviously he didn't want it to be able to be traced back to him at that point, he created a new profile of a woman named Jen. Jen was similar to Sheena in appearance. She had blonde hair. Those were the pictures that Mark was using. And this is when Jen was matched with Mark's next victim, a man named Johnny Altinger. Johnny Altinger was a 38-year-old man who worked as an equipment manufacturer and lived in a White Rock, British Columbia. Now, Mark did the same thing here. He lured in Johnny, pretending to be a woman. The two talked for a little bit, and then Jen, aka Mark, invited Johnny to the studio on October 11th, which, mind you, was just days after his attack on Gilles. The same directions that were given to Gilles were also given to Johnny, and while Johnny was preparing to head over to the studio, Mark was preparing his kill room. Now, the difference here between Johnny and Gilles is that Johnny actually texted his friends. He told his friends that he was going to be hanging out with this girl and where he was going and basically just informing his friends on his plans, which just a little side note, if you ever, and I know everyone says this, but just do it. If you ever go and meet someone off the internet, do it in a public place and make sure people know where you're going. So that's my little speech on that. Now, to Mark's surprise, Johnny actually showed up 15 minutes prior to when Mark was expecting him. And when Johnny pulled up into the driveway, 
of the studio. Mark was basically standing in the doorway. So he made a full on eye contact with Johnny and Johnny got out of the car and basically asked Mark, you know, hey, I'm supposed to meet this girl here. Her name's Jen. Do you know where she is? And what Johnny doesn't know is that during this time, not only is he looking at his killer, his killer is actually preparing the kill room that he is planning to attack Johnny in. Now, Mark told Johnny that he just spoke to Jen and that Jen will be there in about 20-ish minutes and not to worry and that she's on her way and that he was just cleaning out the studio in the meantime. And Johnny didn't think much of it, so he just got in his car, drove around a little bit before coming back 20 minutes later. Now, when Johnny returned back to the studio, Mark actually got a little bit of cold feet and he wasn't sure that he could follow through with his plan. So because of that, when Johnny pulled back up, Mark told Johnny that Jen got stuck in traffic and she was going to be a little while. And this is when Johnny kind of had enough. He was over it and and he decided that he was just going to go home. Now, on Johnny's drive home, any hesitation that Mark had previously had had gone out the window, and Mark had texted Johnny as Jen, telling him that she just showed up to the studio and he should come back to see her. Now, once Johnny arrived to the studio for the third time, Jen told him to walk right in and she would be there. Johnny then walked into the doors of the studio, which was when Mark jumped out from the curtain and attacked Johnny onto the ground. Once Johnny walked in through the doors, that is when Mark jumped out from the curtain and hit Johnny over the head with a metal pipe. After hitting him over the head with the metal pipe, Mark then stabbed Johnny multiple times in the stomach and in his throat and ultimately left him to bleed out on the floor. Now, once Mark was certain that Johnny was dead, he then dragged Johnny's body to the other side of the room where he kept what he called his game processing kit. In this kit, it included a butcher's knife as well as a skinner to dismember Johnny's body. After dismembering Johnny's body, Mark then placed his body parts in a steel barrel and left it in the garage. So now that Mark had officially killed his first victim, he realized that he needed to figure out how to cover his tracks so this wasn't traced back to him. And in order to do this, Mark came up with a plan. Mark actually ended up breaking in to Johnny's apartment and went on his computer and sent an email to all of Johnny's closest friends and family telling them that he was moving to Costa Rica with Jen. This email read, quote, Hey there, I've met an extraordinary woman named Jen who was offered to take me on a nice long vacation. We'll be staying in her winter home in Costa Rica. Phone number to follow soon. I won't be back in town until December 10th, but I will be checking my mail periodically. See you around the holidays. Johnny. Now, when Johnny's family and friends received this email, as you can imagine, it did quite the opposite of what Mark intended it to do. Instead of reading this email and thinking, oh, cool, everything's fine, the red flags started going off like crazy for Johnny's family and friends. His friends became so suspicious that they actually also ended up breaking into Johnny's apartment and scoured throughout the apartment to see if they could find anything suspicious. And not only did they find that all of Johnny's clothes were still in his apartment, they also found 
his passport, which essentially just foiled the entire alibi that Mark had made up. Because obviously, if he was actually going to Costa Rica, he would have needed to bring his passport. Now, because of this finding, Johnny's friends and family immediately contacted the police, and that is when an investigation began. Now, because Johnny had told his friends a little bit of information about where he was going and what he was doing, police were able to take that information more specifically take the location that Johnny had given to his friends and start questioning the people around the area and that included Mark Twitchell because he is the owner of the exact place that Johnny said that he was going. Now at 2 a.m. on October 19th, 2008, Mark was brought in for questioning. Now the only reason he was being brought in at the time was because he was the renter of the studio, not because he was being looked at as a person of interest or a suspect or anything like that. Now the detective initially started off by asking Mark some very basic questions about the studio, like how long he had had it, why he was using it, who was he renting it from, basically questions like that. And Mark gave some more information about the studio. He said that there were two keys to the studio, one that he had and one that his production assistant named Mike Young had. So those were the only two people that had keys to the studio. Along with information about the studio and the technicality and logistics of it, Mark also explained to the detective that he was filming an eight to nine minute short thriller movie in that studio and that was the purpose of him renting it in the first place. Now, when Mark rented the studio, he blacked out the windows and Mark explained to the detectives that the reason he did that was to control light. He wanted to basically just control the lighting in the setting that they were in. He said it's a very common thing that directors and producers do. That way they can control their surroundings and that was the purpose of blocking out the windows. Now, before Mark was brought in for this questioning, he had actually met police at the studio because the timeline of this is that they called him, told him what was going on and asked him to meet them at the studio. And then after he walked them through that, that is when he was brought to the station just shortly after that same night and was questioned a little bit. Now, Mark told the detective that while he was walking the police through the studio, he did notice something a little odd. He noticed that there was a different lock on the door than usual. He said that he typically locks the door with one of those standard padlocks that you'll see on like gym lockers or just any locker, the one that is metal and circular with the black plastic in the middle. However, he said that when he went and walked police through the studio, there was a different padlock on it. And this time it was a bigger, thicker, all metal padlock and he had no idea where it came from. When detectives asked Mark where he was that day that Johnny had gone missing, Mark told police that the only time he was ever at the studio that day was when he went and dropped off cleaning supplies around the late afternoon. Mark told detectives that he dropped off the cleaning supplies that way he could clean up the fake blood that was in the studio and he proceeds to tell detectives that because he's filming a thriller suspense movie it included fake blood he told detectives how he created it and that is with corn syrup and red food coloring and he said that it makes it look very realistic it looks really good on camera however he said that it's really annoying to clean up because it gets really sticky so it needs very strong cleaning solution to clean up 
Now, the irony of him discussing the fact that he needed to clean up fake blood for his movie when we really all know what was happening now is mind-blowing. And the detective called him out on it. He said, isn't it weird that I'm sitting here asking you questions about a man who goes missing nearby your studio and you're also filming a horror movie using fake blood at the same time? And Mark plays it off by agreeing with the detective and says, quote, Yeah, when I got the phone call that this is what was going on, I got a weird chill. End quote. Now, during this questioning, Mark went on to say that he has never met Johnny Altinger in his life and has no idea who that is. Now, at this point, the detective basically starts telling Mark everything that he already knows, which was that Johnny had made plans to meet this girl, Jen, at Mark's studio. He also says that when Johnny got there, Jen wasn't there and that there was a different man there instead. And this is when Mark learns that during that 20 minute time period where Mark had told Johnny that Jen would be there in 20 minutes, Johnny had reached out to his friends and had informed them about what was going on, which which was not something that Mark was aware of. The detective went on to ask Mark if the name Jen meant anything to him, and that is when Mark said no, he didn't know a Jen, he was married to a Jess, but he didn't know a Jen, and this is when the detective then asked him if he was familiar with dating sites, if he had ever used them, or if he still uses them. And obviously Mark said that he had met both of his wives on the Plenty of Fish dating site, and when asked if he still uses those sites, Mark told detectives that he had been on those sites about a month and a half prior to Johnny's disappearance, strictly because he was writing a freelance article about these dating websites and the experiences that people have on them. And he was browsing through the websites strictly for educational purposes. Now, I don't think it will surprise anyone when I say Mark never wrote a freelance article on dating websites. The only reason that he said that was because when he was on Plenty of Fish as Sheena and as Jen, his wife Jess had actually caught him on these websites. And when she confronted him about it, he said the same thing, that he was writing a freelance article. And Jess believed him. And so he obviously had to hold up that same story with the detectives. But Mark never wrote a freelance article on dating websites. Now, the following day after Mark's initial interview, Mark had sent the detective that interviewed him an email saying that he forgot to mention a couple different things about the case. One of these things was the fact that he forgot to tell police that some guy had come up to him the day of Johnny's disappearance and told him that he had met a girl and they were moving to Costa Rica. This guy offered to give Mark his red Mazda car, and when Mark asked how much the guy was offering for the car, the guy told Mark that he would take whatever Mark had out of his pocket, which was about $40, and then Mark was given the car. I don't think it will be a surprise to anyone when I say that the red Mazda car that Mark said he was supposedly given by this random man was, in fact, Johnny Altinger's car. Now, obviously, when hearing this story, this only gave the detective more questions because this whole story about Mark obtaining Johnny Altinger's car 
makes absolutely no sense. So the detectives decided to bring Mark in for another round of questioning on October 20th. Now, Mark explains in more detail the car situation, saying that Johnny told Mark that he was basically in a sugar mama situation, and that was why he was so willing to hand over his car to Mark. Now, during the second interview, Mark was with a different detective, and this detective was actually now the head of the investigation, and he basically tells Mark straight up, without a doubt, that there is no question in his mind that Mark is responsible for this and has something to do with it. And at this point, Mark really doesn't have much to say to defend himself. He basically sits there in shock and he's speechless and he says he doesn't know what's going on and he doesn't understand and he doesn't know what to do. But the lead detective really isn't buying it. The detective actually made a lot of progress with Mark. And while Mark never fully came out and admitted to killing Johnny, he basically confessed without confessing. He told the detective that if he told the truth, he would be afraid of what would happen to his marriage. However, he then moved on to say that his marriage was basically over anyways, so he didn't need to protect his wife anymore. He also said he was afraid to tell the truth because he was afraid of the consequences that would follow. So he kept saying all of these very cryptic and telling things. However, he never came out and flat out said it. So ultimately, the authorities did have to let him go. Now, when authorities let Mark go, they went ahead and got a search warrant for Mark's studio, his home, and his car. Now, when they went through all of it, they found a hockey mask, a steel barrel, blood stains on the inside of Mark's truck, a stun gun, and a post-it note that said, kill room, clean sweep. It was a list of things that Mark had to get done for the day. It was essentially his to-do list, and on it, it said, kill room, clean sweep. Now, when authorities went and looked through Mark's computer, they found two documents that were in Mark's trash folder. The first being the document that I read the excerpt from after his initial attack on Gilles. And this document is a 42-page document. So it's extremely long, which is why I only read an excerpt from it. But essentially, it goes into full detail on Mark's mindset and how he planned on carrying out these killings and details on the attacks. Another excerpt from it is, quote, I just knew I was different somehow from the rest of humanity. I feel no such emotions as empathy or sympathy towards others, for example. He then goes on to say, in reference to his victims, quote, my first question was, who do I want to target? At first, I considered married men looking to cheat on their wives. In one way, I'd be taking out the trash, doing out justice to those who on some level deserved what they got. But the logic of the situation denies this possibility. After all, people who are expected home at a certain hour tend to get reported missing, and there's other facts that would lead to an investigation I didn't want. I finally settled on middle-aged single men who lived alone." end quote, which I want to say the irony of Mark sitting there and saying that his first thought was to kill married men who had been cheating on their wives when in fact he was a married man who had cheated on both of his wives. Just an interesting little connection to make. 
Now, the second document that police found in Mark's trash folder was called The Profile of a Psychopath. And this was a seven-page document written by Mark on why he believes that he is a psychopath. He starts with saying, quote, This is not a clinical diagnosis, an informational breakdown, or a case study as such. This is a way for me to get out on virtual paper exactly what I think I am so I can evaluate it and understand it best. He goes on to say, quote, I am a pathological liar. I have habitually lied my entire life, and despite my incredibly well-adjusted and healthy family life and upbringing, it never stopped. I lie to my wife and to my family on a particularly constant basis. Sometimes I do this to protect them. Occasionally, I mentally kick myself for making an idiot move or decision, but it's not the same thing. Even though my wife is by far the greatest woman I have ever known, an excellent mother to our child, and the greatest partner anyone could ask for, I still cheat, but only for the thrill of it, not because I feel neglected or entitled. I cruise dating sites on a regular basis. One time she caught me red-handed, logged into a website specifically devoted to cheating spouses. I immediately launched an intricate web of lies right on the spot without hesitation about how I was writing a freelance article about online dating and that I was merely doing research for it, end quote. Now, both of these documents, as well as the blood found in the trunk, was enough for police to make an arrest. And on April 12, 2011, Mark Twitchell was convicted of first-degree murder for the death of John Altinger. And he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. And I do think that the fact that Mark has the possibility of getting released after 25 years is terrifying to say the least when you read those documents and read how twisted his mindset is and the things that he believes and the things that he thinks and how his brain operates. He wrote a 42-page novel, so to speak, about his attacks and how he planned on going and who he was targeting and why he was targeting them. And he also believes that he is a psychopath. Now, he was given a psychological evaluation where it was found that he was fit to sit trial, so he is not legally considered insane. However, I do think that most people who would see something like this would think that it's probably best that he does not get released. So that, you guys, is the case of Mark Twitchell. All right, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. If you're listening to me on the podcast, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly every Wednesday and you're not going to want to miss it. Also, make sure you go ahead and share this episode with anyone that you know who loves true crime. The more exposure we get on these cases, the more justice we can bring to the victims. If you're watching me on YouTube, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button as well. We post every Thursday and you're not going to want to miss that either. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.